Welcome to the IOMS podcast series, where we gather for conversations from top surgeons across the globe. In this series, we're exploring the history of the specialty from the unique point of view of each global region. How did the specialty evolve as a distinct area of practice? Who were the key players? Where's the specialty heading in the future? Stay tuned for insights into these questions and more. Let's listen in. This podcast is on the history of the International Association's Oceania Intercontinental Region and is moderated by Professor Alastair Goss of Adelaide. Alastair is a historian of the region. He co-authored a book on the region's history entitled Extractions to Reconstruction, which was published in 2015 and presented at the ICOMS. His panelists are Professor Frank Monsor of Brisbane, where he was head of the service for many years. Professor Andrew Heggie was the head and now senior surgeon of the oral and maxillofacial surgery at the Royal Children's Hospital of Melbourne. Professor David Weisenfeld of Melbourne is the director of the Head and Neck Tumor Stream at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Center. Mr. Brian Whiteley of Hamilton, New Zealand, where he is in private specialist practice, and Associate Professor Jocelyn Shand, who is currently the Oceana representative to the IAOMS executive. Alistair, Frank, Andrew, David, Brian, and Jocelyn have all been in leadership positions in the Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery Association in Australia, New Zealand, and Oceania. They will share their experiences with you now. So over to you, Alistair. Dear fellow members of the International Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons, it's a great pleasure to talk with you about development of oral and maxillofacial surgery in Oceania. So firstly, where is and what is Oceania? It is the continental region which covers one-sixth of the globe from the equator to Antarctica. Though it's huge, most of it is the Pacific Island Ocean with lots of islands. It's sparsely populated with only 44 million people in Oceania. Oceania is to the south and to the east of Asia, which is the largest continental landmass with a huge population of over 4 billion. Europe North and South America are half a world away from us and a day's aeroplane flight. The largest island in Oceania is Australia, with a population of 25 million spread thinly over a huge island. The width of Australia is the same as New York to California, or in Europe, from Ireland to Moscow. The First Nation Indigenous Aboriginal people populated Australia 60,000 years ago and are the oldest continuous civilization in the world. Australia was colonised by the British over 200 years ago, but through immigration over the last 100 years, we now have the most multicultural society in the world. The next biggest island population to Australia is New Zealand. New Zealand is to the east of Australia by about 3,200 kilometres across the Tasman Sea for a two-hour flight. Initially, there was a large Polynesian population, the Maoris, who today make up 25% of the New Zealand population of nearly 5 million. New Zealand was colonised by the British over 200 years ago and today is also a very multicultural society. Just to the north of Australia is the large tropical island of Papua New Guinea with a large indigenous tribal society. Scattered to the north and east of Australia and New Zealand are the Polynesian and Melanesian Islands. These include Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, Vanuatu, the Solomons and the Cook Islands. Altogether, there are 14 countries and 9 dependencies in Oceania. 
Australia and New Zealand uh, made a very substantial contribution to the maxillofacial units established in the United Kingdom in both the First and the Second World Wars. Australian and New Zealanders have always been uh, travellers and in the 1950s many young surgeons travelled to the United Kingdom and beyond to complete their education. One of the benefits of this was that if you liked what you saw, you incorporated it into your practice. But if not, you were polite and went elsewhere for inspiration. We've always done that. So Australia and New Zealand, we can adopt the best and latest without being tied to tradition. Pioneers were Cook of Melbourne, Anchor of Sydney and Bell of New Zealand. They brought back innovation, innovative practice and teaching methods. However, this all ended up with a very heterogeneous, individualistic speciality. Some trained overseas, some locally in universities, and some in both. In the 1970s, we had a very divergent group who all called themselves specialists. This increasingly became a subject of criticism from the health regulators and from our surgical competitors. This heterogeneity was shown when we examined 20 consecutive applicants for membership of our speciality association. None were of the same qualifications or length of training. So our national association acted and set up an education committee to develop a national plan. They, too, they chose two young and pushy academic surgeons, Frank Monsur as chairman and myself for the task. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Frank Monsur, to talk about our plan for the future. Thank you. As Alistair previously introduced, in earlier years, training and accreditation in oral surgery in our region was significantly dependent on traditional overseas exposure and varied qualifications and standards supporting regional university-based training. Inevitably, the time came when our specialty wished to assume greater national independence and control of its destiny. That time arrived in Australia and New Zealand in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, driven by a highly energised and motivated leadership group for change, including myself with the specialty exposed in each state to increasingly intense challenges on several fronts directed to its developed scope of practice, as well as demanding recognition of standards equivalent to other surgical specialties. Our structure was far too fragile and exposed, and we needed to take control by achieving a pathway to full surgical recognition and its status, or risk stronger challenges and an uncertain future beyond our control. In these regards, a pivotal and timely decision by the Specialty Association was to commission a critical report researched and authored by myself and Alastair Goss, titled Oral Surgery in Australia, a plan for the 1980s, as well as to strategically embrace the addition of maxillofacial, more appropriately defining the specialty, consistent with the direction 
of the American Association and protecting our scope. This roadmap report encapsulated three clear and uncompromising recommendations to be achieved, namely, first, consistency of binational training and practice in oral and maxillofacial surgery with absolute equivalence in all respects with recognised surgical specialties, fully transparent and appropriately regulated. This required transition from the traditional university degree-based programs to nationally-based surgical college fellowship training and accreditation. Second, establish national constantly reviewed properly structured database promoting the recognition of appropriate manpower profiles to comprehensively satisfy the overall service requirements of the specialty in all capabilities in all jurisdictions to justify full community, professional and institutional endorsement. And finally, to receive both professional and political endorsement to achieve specialist registration and accreditations. We worked relentlessly throughout the 1980s and 1990s under the stewardship of the association and dedicated committees, progressively developing our specialty structure to achieve these essential goals. The challenges encountered by the inaugural Board of Studies were understandably considerable in implementation of the conversion to binational college-based training and accreditation structures. I am reminded of one such challenge in initiating initial accreditation visitation surveys to all recognised training centres, where the College Council was concerned this would upset the universities, who were integral to the transition process, as well as wider college interests. This was overcome by the Accreditation Committee, which I chaired, undertaking an initial informal trial visitation involving the Adelaide South Australian Training Centre, which was highly successful and so well received by both the university and tertiary teaching hospitals, dispelling any further concerns and opening the way to formal accreditation visits to all centres. This period, while extremely demanding, represented a golden period in the development of our energised specialty and association, rewarded ultimately with the goal of formal recognition through government legislation as a principal surgical specialty, accorded the exclusive title oral and maxillofacial surgery in both countries in 1998. This represented a stellar achievement by our regional surgical specialty, igniting the membership and association 
in Australia and New Zealand, with wider benefits escalating to impact throughout the Oceania region. Thanks, Frank, for your detailed discussion of how things were set up. It's now my pleasure to introduce David Wiesenfeld, who was instrumental in taking the college training process forward. The college established a diploma in oral surgery in the 1970s, which evolved into the Specialty Fellowship in Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, awarded by the RACDS after the satisfactory completion of four years of structured training and a rigorous examination leading to the FRACDS OMS exit qualification. The first diet of the exam was held in 1987 and included an esteemed overseas examiner, Professor Sir Paul Bramley from the United Kingdom. The RACDS provided governance through a board of oral and maxillofacial surgery established with leading surgeons and teachers, broadly representing the training institutions who were subsequently accredited to provide training. During the late 70s and 80s, the trend to acquiring a registrable medical degree for the practice of OMS was gaining international support. Anne Zoms foreshadowed this change in a working party which I chaired recommended that a medical degree be mandated for all trainees commencing training. In 1991, the recommendation was accepted. Since that time, progress has been rapid, with movement from about 10% of ANZOMS members duly qualified to currently 85%. In less than 10 years, it will likely be 100%. The Board of OMS within the RACDS has been in place for 35 years. It's evolved from an advisory board to a board of governance. The Medical and Dental Councils of Australia and New Zealand regularly review and accredit the training program. The board regularly reviews and accredits individual training hospitals and training centres and functions with its committees to supervise training. A modular training program has been developed with learning and achievement goals for each year of the four-year training program to facilitate progression. There is continuous assessment and reporting with scope for training centres to manage any experience deficiencies for for individual trainees. The training posts are regularly assessed for compliance with quality training opportunities, curriculum coverage and clinical throughput. The process is overseen by the Accreditation Committee, which also directs the micro-credentialing in the subspecialty areas of cranio-maxillofacial surgery and head and neck cancer surgery, including reconstruction. The committee can award credentialing in these specialty areas for those candidates who have completed advanced training beyond the core training required for fellowship. Currency of practice must be maintained. The Research Committee guides the research program that each candidate must complete as part of their training, usually with the award of a master's or PhD from state and New Zealand universities associated with the training program. The board participated in an interim board process with the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons in 2004, with a view to establishing a conjoint fellowship between the two colleges. Considerable progress was made with curriculum development and governance over the two-year period, with the support of international colleagues, including the late John Lowry. Sadly, the outcome was not supported by the RACS Council. 
The exercise led to significant strengthening of OMS training as most of the recommendations of the interim board were implemented by the RACDS. RACS educational processes and courses were made available to our trainees and meetings with the RACS to monitor the relationships continue to the present. The role of OMS within Australia is very different to the one that I and many of my fellow panellists accepted and practised in 1983. OMS will continue to evolve and develop with the driving forces of both a dual qualification and college governance that will set the agenda for the future. Thank you, David, for your description of how we set up our curriculum and our educational processes. One of the first trainees to complete our new training was Jocelyn Shand, who will speak about her experiences. The incorporation of a medical degree into the training program was the next most significant step in our evolution. This resulted in an increased recognition of the specialty amongst the other surgical groups and the hospitals, and it resulted in access to an increased scope of surgery that has included head and neck cancer surgery, microvascular procedures, craniofacial surgery, and in my own case, paediatric surgery. A number of surgeons from my generation have gone on to become heads of these major hospital units, and we have continued to foster the development of younger surgeons. We are grateful to the pioneers who went before us to help establish OMS as a principal surgical specialty. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's now my pleasure to introduce Andrew Heggie, who's going to talk about the scope of oral and maxillofacial surgery and how it's evolved in Australia and New Zealand. As a dental student in the mid-1970s, I was drawn to the more medical subjects of the dental course and became aware of a department of dental medicine and surgery. This was a complete revelation to me that dentists were involved in many surgical procedures for managing conditions around the mouth and jaws. I was thus thrilled to be accepted for training in oral surgery via the master's degree in the University of Melbourne Dental School and was again surprised that trainees were involved in managing fractures of the jaws. At this time, I only had a blurry understanding of the scope of oral surgery internationally, but was aware that most of our teachers had spent a year or more in the United Kingdom. Our Melbourne leading oral surgeon at this time was Bob Cook, a former president of the International Association, who had brought back techniques of repositioning the jaws, particularly the mandible, and was actively performing these procedures in both public and private. I sensed that this was a dawning of a new and exciting arm of surgery for our specialty. Also, as trainees in the late 1970s and early 1980s who participated in the multidisciplinary management of facial trauma and pathology, our appetites grew in the desire to manage the full maxillofacial skeleton, despite other competing specialties controlling their self-appointed territory. In our training, oral medicine and pathology was taught, but as our training in the newer techniques of managing developmental jaw deformities consolidated, particularly with the input and involvement of our orthodontic colleagues, one could see that oral medicine and maxillofacial surgery were starting to diverge. All state training programs in Australia were experiencing these changes in interest and scope to a greater or lesser degree, and most trainees sought international experience, now referred to as fellowships that were available in the UK 
and in some centres in the United States. This opened up a greater scope of managing pathology and oncology and further accelerated the rapidly developing management of dentofacial deformity in conjunction with orthodontists. By the middle of the 1980s, the specialty of oral surgery had largely been replaced in its name by oral and maxillofacial surgery and was reflected in the name of departments, journals, and the designation of our surgical titles. This would inevitably bring our scope of surgery into conflict with adjacent specialties, particularly plastic and reconstructive surgery, and to a lesser degree, ear, nose, and throat surgery. The latter, of course, were staking out further territory and were in the process of altering their title to ENT, head and neck surgery, that was traditionally a more subspecialty interest of general surgery. A broadening of the training curriculum referred to by David with specific modules uh, to be taught reflected a more extended scope, which in turn increased a sense of interest and ownership. By the mid-1990s, a medical degree was made mandatory for training in our specialty with the recognition this would promote a more extensive involvement in oncology and craniofacial deformity. OMS surgeons were already gaining further participation in cleft and craniofacial management in some centres in Australia and New Zealand. A survey conducted in 2014 revealed that over one-third of the specialty was regularly involved in oncological resective surgery and a small but increasing group of surgeons were and continue to perform vascularised tissue transfer for reconstruction. The most recently published workforce study conducted in 2011 was revealing in that while the full scope of surgery was increasingly practised across Oceania, particularly in major units, it was noted that dentovular and implant surgery formed the great majority of work for most practitioners in their private practices. Research activities in the specialty were traditionally conducted by surgical academics within the universities. In the mid-1990s, our association established a research and education foundation funded by donors from the specialty. This provided funds for more hospital-based clinical studies and has been used fully up to the present time. While occasional interactions with other surgical specialties involve attempts to limit the scope of our specialty in both public and private hospital settings, it is now increasingly difficult for others to justify any limitation on those who are comprehensively trained in a subspecialist area. Thank you, Andrew, for talking about our scope and research. We now pass back to Frank Monsur, who will talk about the earlier days of our professional association, the Australian and New Zealand Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons. It is the backbone of all our professional, educational and political activities. Thank you. The association, to an extent, owes its origins to an earlier failed attempt to follow the example of the UK surgical colleges and establish a faculty of dental surgery within the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, being promoted in 1957. This resulted in the establishment of a Society of Oral Surgeons being advanced initially by our founding members at a meeting in Adelaide that same year. This subsequently led ultimately to the formally constituted expanded Australian and New Zealand Society 
of oral surgeons with membership throughout Australia and New Zealand, which held its first official meeting in Sydney in 1961. It is notable that one of the society's pioneers, Everett Magnus, who died in December 1967, is remembered by the Everett Magnus Oration, established by the Society and first delivered before members in 1971 in Melbourne. I remember the Society in those earlier years, having been accepted to membership in 1969 and attending meetings linked not only to the Australian Dental Congress, but also very much dependent on the strong alliance of departments of oral surgery within the university dental schools for more frequent meetings and workshops. In those earlier years, the university departments dominated the education and training of oral surgeons with strong attachments to associated metropolitan dental hospitals. The earlier scientific meetings of the society were mostly hosted by the university departments, coincident with traditional annual meetings of university heads of oral surgery. The association remained essentially managed on an honorary basis until well into the 1990s, when on my ascendancy into the role of chairman of the Australian National Committee, followed by the presidency of ANZOMS, I sought support of council for the appointment of a part-time executive officer, Dr. Greg Herring. Dr. Herring was a retired Air Force physician and hospital administrator who well satisfied the increasingly demanding functions of the rapidly expanding and independent association at a critical time of our roadmap towards surgical recognition, being managed with other involved institutions and authorities. With his extensive professional and political lobbying credentials, as previous Chief Executive Officer of the Private Hospitals Association in Canberra, Greg was a great strength in support of the presidency and advocacy of our specialty to government bodies, leading to the achievement of principal surgical specialty status, supported also eventually by the RACS executive, and achieved by Australian government regulation in late 1998. This represented a singularly, extremely important achievement for our specialty, led by the association, laying the foundations for continued, unassailable, full surgical specialty recognition. Thanks, Frank, for your insight. And I remember in those days, professors and heads of university departments were highly revered, unlike the present day. We will now pass on to Andrew to talk more about the recent development of the association. Thank you, Alistair. 
After the strengthening of Anzons during the Greg Herring years with respect to advocacy and profile of the specialty, I was elected president of Anzons in 2013, just after Herring's retirement. My first task was to appoint a new executive officer to carry the association forward. And after an unsuccessful six-month appointment, we had Jackie Hocking, who took control of the, of the association. Her corporate background was invaluable in managing the finances, and together during my term, we made a complete transition to digital records so that all association business was online. Another major change was the establishment of a permanent office that was leased from our college offices in the Sydney CBD. This facilitated a more immediate, immediate interaction with the Board of Studies within the college, and towards the end of my presidency, Anzons hosted the International Conference on Oral Maxillofacial Surgery in 2015 in Melbourne, and this was deemed a great success. Soon after, Jackie Hocking returned to manage the family business, and Belinda Mellows was appointed as the, executive, as the new executive officer and has continued to support the presidents up to the present who have had to advocate for our specialty in the face of a new challenge of the lesser trained oral surgery category that has been established once again by the University of Sydney Dental School. Thank you, Andrew. We now pass across the Tasman to our colleagues in New Zealand. New Zealand in some ways is similar to Australia, but in many other ways quite different. So Brian Whiteley will give us his insights. Thank you, Alistair. New Zealand oral and maxillofacial surgeons are extremely proud to be part of ANZOMS a binational association of specialists. In true ANZAC tradition, lifelong friendships have been maintained between members on either side of the Tasman. Since its inception as the ANSOS in Adelaide in 1957, ANZOMS, as it later became known as, to more accurately reflect the true expanded scope of the specialty, has evolved into a highly regarded professional organisation of international renown. As a New Zealand surgeon, I'm extremely proud to be able to say that a number of Kiwis have been influential, not only in terms of Anzoms, but also overseas. Of course, there are commonalities between the two nations in terms of the history of Anzoms, the scope of practice, training, and the final examination, as well as in the field of research and education. These areas have been discussed by the previous speakers. New Zealand members are very keen to have the relationship continue and, as a small nation of 5 million people, about the same population as Sydney or Melbourne, we have benefited substantially in many ways by being part of a binational association with our trans-Tasman cousins. New Zealand has had representation on all ANZOMS and college committees, including the Awards Committee and the Research and Education Foundation Committee and New Zealanders have held all manner of office in ANZOMS, including the role of President, on several occasions. We are, however, a different country with a different government and legislation. We have different tax laws, which became apparent when dealing with donations from New Zealand members into the ANZOMS Research and Education Foundation. New Zealand requires a separate account for tax deductibility purposes, for instance. New Zealand has only one faculty of dentistry for the entire country, based at the University of Otago in Dunedin. It is here that the academic component for the doctorate in clinical dentistry and oral and maxillofacial surgery is undertaken, 
with separate salaried clinical training positions established in Auckland, Hamilton and Christchurch in 1999 via the Clinical Training Agency. The New Zealand Enzymes membership totals 33 out of a total membership of over 200. Specialists in this country either work part-time in private practice and part-time working for the district health boards or in private practice exclusively. Apart from surgeons working at the University of Otago, there are no full-time public appointments in oral and maxillofacial surgery in New Zealand. New Zealand has a different government and private health system to Australia, which does influence the scope of practice and costs to the patient. Fortunately, the combination of private and public health delivery does manage to deliver full services to our community. The New Zealand branch of Anzoms hosts an annual conference, which in recent years has been held in Queenstown in August during the ski season. It has proved to be a hugely successful meeting with an excellent scientific program, including keynote overseas speakers supported by our own New Zealand speakers. Our Australian colleagues have supported the meeting in large numbers. The first day is dedicated to trainee presentations, and workshops are also run for the trainees on various topics. Overseas aid is being undertaken by several New Zealand members of ANZOMS. A number, including myself, are involved with the Smiles for the Pacific charitable organisation, which has a state-of-the-art dental clinic established in Laotoka in 2014. With the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, monthly webinars on a range of topics have been held as a means of continuing the link with Fiji. One of our New Zealand members of Anzomes assists in, the, in one of the least well-funded craniofacial clinics in Nepal. The emphasis is on educating and upskilling the local surgeons in the areas of trauma, pathology and cleft palate. In terms of the future, the specialty now has a respected profile as a surgical and dental specialty in Australasia, but we have a manpower shortage in terms of both trainees and clinical trainers in New Zealand. Workforce surveys in the past have recommended we train between one and two new surgeons per annum. Due to, our, due to our rapidly growing population, that number appears now to be inadequate and needs to be between two and three trainees per year. In addition, the number of specialists working in our public hospitals is down. We therefore need to encourage more specialists to work in the public hospitals and be involved in supervision of our trainees as the trainees are the future of our specialty. Thank you, Brian. Jocelyn will now speak about our international involvements. Thank you, Alistair. Australia was a foundation member of the international meeting with representatives being present at the very first meeting in London in 1962. Thereafter, there have always been representatives on the Association's Council and a number of individuals have been on the executive. Prominent individuals were Sandy McAllister from New Zealand, who was the fourth president. David Poswillow, a New Zealander based in the United Kingdom, was the international secretary. And Bob Cook was the president in the early 1990s. Later, Alistair Goss moved on from the council and was on the executive as chair of the Education Committee for some six years. In that period, Australia and New Zealand were part of the much larger Asia grouping. As Oceania is a separate continental region, it separated from the Asian grouping in 1996. 
My colleague David will talk about the developments from there, including the international conference in Melbourne, which he organised in 2015. Thank you, Jocelyn. ICOMS 2015 was at the time the most successful ICOMS ever held with regard to the quality of the program, the social events, the spirit of international collegiality and financial success. Credit must go to our colleagues George Dimitroulis and Anne Collins, the bid chairperson and Anne's OMS president who initiated the bid process. Planning was in place for four years, supported by three IAOMS presidents, Larry Nissen, Kishore Nayak and Pete Hares. Andrew Heggie, ably assisted by Jocelyn Shand, created a wonderful scientific program with worldwide interest. Who can forget our night on the markets at the riverfront, a joyous festive event. We learnt from our predecessors and through the support of our members, international attendees, sponsors, conference organiser and the IAOMS leadership, it was a week to remember. Thank you, David, for running a very successful ICOMS 2015. Australia and New Zealand, as well-developed industrial nations, have long been involved in helping less developed nations of Oceania and Southeast Asia. This primarily involves basic medical, dental, nursing and other health professionals to be trained in our teaching institutions. Dentists from Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands and Tonga have received specialist surgical training in Australia and New Zealand, appropriate to their country's needs. An example is Dr. Amanaki Fakievutu, who is currently the only oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Tonga. He is also the principal dental officer and a deputy superintendent at the Tongan National Hospital. Dental officers who provide surgical services are regular guests at our national conferences to extend their contacts and experience. Whilst John Curtin was the Oceanic International Counselor, he ran an Oceania training course. Hands-Ons has long had an overseas and outreach subcommittee led at various times by John Avia, Barbara Woodhouse and Michael Shinberg. This worked on the principle that give a man a fish, he will eat for a day, but teach a man to fish and he will eat for the rest of his life. So numerous surgical teams visit the regional areas to teach the local surgeons techniques to help their people. This is rewarding but can be challenging. For example, I personally was involved in the re-establishment of the health system in Timor-Leste after their civil war and their establishing of a new independent country. A very challenging experience. Regular teams visit Cambodia and Vietnam to teach local surgeons in provincial hospitals to perform cleft palate repair and jaw surgery. A major initiative was the establishment at the University of Dakar, Bangladesh, of a full four-year course in oral and maxillofacial surgery. Jocelyn, you were one of our visiting surgeons in Bangladesh, so give us your thoughts on the challenges and rewards that you faced. Thank you, Alistair. In the early 1990s, a South Australian surgeon, Barry Fitzpatrick, developed a program for Australasian surgeons to visit Dhaka in Bangladesh to assist the local OMS surgeons in both training and the management of a variety of surgical conditions. A number of surgeons were involved and some returned for multiple visits and I joined them in the late 1990s for a visit. The need for surgical support in this impoverished country to manage the huge numbers of cleft lip and palate deformities, 
T and J ankyloses, post-traumatic skeletal deformities, and oral pathology and cancer could not be understated. These experiences were challenging, but enormously rewarding in being able to make a difference for individual patients. The teaching of the Bengali trainees and support of the existing surgeons and an understanding of the difficulties facing a developing country with limited resources. The density of the population and cultural differences gave a perspective that no one would otherwise experience. A number of trainees and surgical nurses also participated in our visits, and these, together with other OMS surgeons visiting countries in our region, were a valuable addition to the profile of our specialty and the commitment of our association made to support this humanitarian work. To our many friends internationally, this is the history of Oceania and how we achieved our current position. We encourage all nations and continental groups to record and promote their history. This is how we can develop and progress. Oceania welcomes any of you to come and visit us down under. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us today. Visit us online at www.iaoms.org to become a member of our vibrant global community and to access a variety of education and timely resources. Stay up to date by following IOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're here so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. Until next time.